Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. White. A blank page or canvas? The challenge, bring order to the whole. Through design, composition, tension, Balance, light, and harmony. Hello, all theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, and welcome to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This is the first of many series devoted to specific artists that have helped shape Broadway as we know it today, both for better and for worse. It is called A Little Sondheim Music, and it is dedicated to the musicals of one Mr. Stephen Sondheim. I am your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. And with me today is an alum of the pod. You know her work from Avita at City Center, from Ragtime at Ellis Island, and you know her work from being on this podcast talking about this exact same show a little over a year later. But you know what? Fate is a fickle thing. Please welcome Emily Malpe. Hi. Hello, Emily. <laughs> so good to see you again. Good to see you too, Matt. <laughs> Was that an okay intro? Do you feel like I captured your essence, your being? Yeah, yeah. Especially the part where I've literally been on this podcast discussing the same topic. <laughs> exactly. One might say you are the Breakdown's Sunday specialist. Wow, a real honor. A real, real honor. And before anybody rolls their eyes at Emily coming back, because Lord knows Emily did too, um, <laughs> I attempted some change. I had someone who was interested in doing Sunday. And I was like, well, I want Emily back on to talk about Sondheim because she's smart and I like her. And so I was like, how would you feel about learning a little bit about Merrily? And like, we both would kind of, you know, come to it from similar perspectives of like kind of knowing it, but learning it a bit more. And you're like, you were game. You were super game at the moment. Super excited. I love Merrily. Like I was like, this is going to be fun. Yeah. And I'll get then, to like listen to it. And then the person who was supposed to do Sunday completely fell off the plate, uh, the face of the earth, could not be reached in any of the ways that this person gave me ways to contact them. And 
I texted Emily and I said, you know how I told you you weren't doing Sunday? Well, apparently God thought that was stupid and made the person who was going to do Sunday disappear. So I'm so sorry. You have to talk about Sunday again. Here we are. I hope that nobody listening also listened to the other episode because I will probably sound and say exactly the same thing. Probably. The good news for us is I remember exactly two things you said and zero of the things that I said. Um, right which tells you how I feel about my own thoughts and opinions. Sure. <laughs> so, and I'm, I'm almost positive you don't remember anything from that episode. So we won't have any fear of repeating ourselves, but I'm sure anyone who has that episode memorized as well, they should, yeah. because we're very quotable. Right. I mean, that episode has like a huge fan base. And so I'm like, really sorry. <laughs> them down, but... I know. I, mean, I, I get DMs every week from people, you know, all over the world. And they're just like, Matt, Yes, you are sexy as hell, but what's really sexy about you is the way you and Emily Malby talk about Sunday the Park with George. I just yeah. like touch myself yeah. to that episode. And I'm like, yeah, dulcet tones. Oi, oi, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Emily doesn't like that, but it's fine. It's not about you. This is my podcast. That's true. That's true. I'm here to help you. <laughs> exactly. Help me. So before we dig deep, uh, for anybody who's new to this podcast, and I sort of remember, but not totally, how did one Miss Emily Malpy come to find Sunday in the Park with George? Yeah, <clears throat> I found Sunday in the Park with George um, at a very, very young, one might say inappropriately young age. Um, my parents used to play show tunes in the car for us. I come from a very theatery family. And um, we, they would play, we played a lot of, they played a lot of Sondheim and they would specifically play a lot of the Sondheim etc album the Bernadette Peters album mm-hmm. Jesus on the cross that one yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and we would always complain in the car and always ask you know put on Disney or put on you know whatever yeah. like normal human kids uh, and then they would put on Sunday in the park and we I just sort of like shut up and so they were like all right that's good enough for me and and then apparently this the myth goes that like a couple weeks later like they would hear they, I was out playing and they heard me like singing the songs uh to myself and they're like oh she's I think she's like maybe really listening to it and so I was I was about six years old at this point um and so, it's important for everyone to understand just <laughs> how little you were yeah I was I was about six and um so and more and more, I kept requesting it in the car and listening to it. I have this weird memory of sitting in the back seat of the car. It was late at night. We were driving home, and Move On was on, and I was like crying in the back seat. Um, I, I don't remember like what I was feeling, but I just remember like listening to Move On and crying. Anyway, so at a certain point, my parents decided that uh, I needed to see the show because um, all I had done was listen to it. But of course, like it wasn't running, and and the the PBS video, the what is now readily available on DVD and everything, uh, wasn't at the time. And so um, my father, who is a writer and, and knows Steve, asked him uh, if, there, if he had a copy of the video because he knew that it had been filmed. And so on two VHS tapes that I'm pretty sure were just, actually, I know that they were taped over something because one of the acts, like when it ended, it like cut to some other movie. So it's clearly that he had like taped over something. Mm-hmm. He taped it for us. Um, 
on two VHS tapes and and gave them to me and I and I got to see them when I was six and I loved it like just just immediately loved it so much and and um wrote Steve this like whole thank you letter when I was six saying how much I loved it and also where I thought that there was, like Dot made the wrong choice and she should have known that George was an artist and she should have stayed with him and this whole thing and and I think at one point I said the song move on makes me cry because I understand that and what she's been through in her life at six years old <laughs> and um and so uh, that we sent him the letter and then I got a letter back from him which was basically like defending the choice like he was like well to stay with George would have made her really unhappy and Mm -hmm. um, but he ended the letter by saying uh, your letter made me cry as much as move on made you cry which is a very very beautiful thing so I have both my letter a photocopy of my letter and his letter framed uh, in my mother's house it's very Sondheim of him to defend the show to a yeah. six-year-old. Yeah. I will say, I have in seen- fairness, I came for the show. Like You did, you did. Being like, being like I, I, think, I think probably the show should have ended differently. And, yeah. Sorry about it, Steve. Uh, I, have, I have seen both of those letters in your childhood home. And I must say, his response while defending the show is probably the most polite he's ever been defending a show. Uh, and no, maybe it's, it's very because, sweet. Maybe it's, it's because you are six. I don't remember how I got into the show. I The only thing I can say for certain is that I did not get the DVD until after I knew you. And I definitely think you were the person that kind of pushed me to like buy it. I don't know. Mm. I don't want to make you seem like a pusher. You're a, <laughs> you're, I'm a pusher, Katie. I'm a pusher. But it was, yeah, I had definitely never seen the show in full and definitely not that original production from PBS uh, until afterwards. And I remember really loving it. And then I got to finally see it live when Roundabout did it uh, from the Menier production, which we'll get to, we'll talk about. But that was my first live production. And I do recall at that point I was fully in it. I was like on board with the Sunday stuff. And I went with my senior class in high school because our I guess our English teacher usually would show the PBS broadcast every year for the English classes and since it was being done live that year we all got to go and I just remember uh, at intermission everyone in my class was like what is this and I got very angry and I started yelling at all of them in the um, second floor lobby area of Studio 54 like where the bar is I yelled at all of them and that was good yeah Good. You should have. I, have. I absolutely should have. If you did, if it, if you've seen the Act One finale of Sunday in the Park with George, and you and you're still not sold, I can't help you. Yeah. Let's get into this Sunday business in terms of how it came to be, who we are, what it's about, why it's here. And Emily is much more of a Sunday expert than I am. So anytime, Emily, that you feel I am going down the wrong path of historical facts or anything you want to contribute, you know what to do. All right. Yeah. Cut this bitch off. So. 1981, Merrily We Roll Along opens and then promptly closes, and Sondheim feels very sort of uh, hurt by the Broadway community. He felt that the reception was a little too hostile and was thinking about leaving musical theater forever, which, you know, been there. And he ends up sort of coming back to writing about a year later when uh, he talks with Lewis Allen, who's a producer. This is June of 1982. 
And Lewis Allen's like, oh, um, you should meet with James Lapine. He has this idea for a musical and would really like to collaborate with you. And Sondheim had seen Lapine's play 12 Dreams earlier in that year and really loved it. And he was like, I really wanted to approach him at the time, but I was too nervous. I uh, really wanted to work with him, but I thought that, was, that I didn't know what his thoughts are on musical theater. He was his downtown off-Broadway playwright, and they tend to think that musicals are beneath them. So I, I was like, I'll just slink away, which is nice that he's humble like that. He's Stephen Sondheim, and he's still like, I'm not cool enough for him, and, <laughs> and walks away. Uh, Lapine's idea was to take this novella called A Cool Million and turn it into a musical. Are you familiar with this? No. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. I'm, telling, I'm teaching you something. Uh, yeah. It's basically a modern version of Candide, a cool million, which is like this dude who stays optimistic throughout all of his life, even though terrible thing after terrible thing keeps happening to him, eventually ending in his death, which causes this like giant political revolution uh, in his country. And they talk about it and sometimes like, listen, it's too much like Candide and Candide's already been done. Uh, I think it's best to sort of just like, move on and so they decide like okay what's something else we could do and the exchange that little pine always likes to quote is he says to Sondheim he's like you know I think if we put our heads together we could come up with something that would be commercial and liked by a lot of people and Sondheim turns to him and he goes I would never do that Pine's <laughs> like and the pine's like great so um let's make a musical about a painting then yeah that's funny Fuck it. Yeah, he's like, I, they were going to do Porky's the Musical and Sondheim said, absolutely not. And so Lapine's like, great, let's yeah. write something about a music, about a painting. Um, yeah, it basically came about because they were talking about the concept of art and Sondheim said musically he wanted to write something with themes and variations, which I guess like, I'm not entirely sure how that's different from what he used to write. When he's like, I want to try this. I'm like, haven't you always been doing that? And I, maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. I feel like a lot of his scores have that. Yeah, I guess so. That's interesting. I mean, Sunday, in a lot of ways, the, the music is like more conceptual in that it's like pointillistic score. Like yeah. it's like the music is like an attempt to capture the experience of looking at the painting. Mm -hmm. But I don't know about, I mean, themes and variations. I feel like that's, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not inside his head. I don't understand these things. Um, but he he makes a reference to uh, this magazine article that's uh, has different versions of the Mona Lisa in it um, and says like, I want to kind of try something like this with the score. And can you hear that? Can you hear the phone ringing? Background? Not really. Okay. A little bit in the distance. A little bit in the distance. Yeah. Phone's ringing. Fuck it. Uh, I'm not home. So uh, basically what happens is that he points to this article and says like, I kind of want to try something like this, which leads to a discussion of French art. And then they sort of discuss the Surratt painting Sunday afternoon on the island of the Grand Jatte. And they start talking about like who all these people are. None of them are looking at each other. Why is that? Who could you know they be? What would lead them to this island on a Sunday? And then Lapine says, you know, there's somebody missing here. Sondheim goes, who? And Lapine says, the artist. And Sondheim goes, we have a musical. And the writing begins. They develop it over the course of a year at Playwrights Horizons. And they do a sort of workshop production in July of 83. And uh, it's really just the first act. And even then it's like really two thirds of the first act that the first act really gets completed over the three weeks that they perform it there. And the second act doesn't get performed until the last three performances, which is, I find that, I think it's very bold. Not, not only to have people just sit and watch one act, but to like 
I don't know, you do you do this one show for two and a half weeks. And then the last three days, you tell your entire company, hey, guys, we're doing a whole second act. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I, every show I work on from now on, when you like give them a line change, and they're like, oh, no, my brain. I'm gonna be like, I could give you a whole set different act be grateful <laughs> exactly uh i talked about it with other shows before pacific overtures so, there were so many shows where sometime like had only half the score written once they got into rehearsal and after night music hell prince was like literally never again um, <laughs> because yeah, i feel like that's i feel like that's a bit of a bygone era thing like where you you're like we went into rehearsal and all we have are three songs i'm like that would never happen now <laughs> Absolutely. The the amazing thing with Night Music was like they didn't have an act one finale for so long. And so Prince was like, fuck it, I'm just going to stage it, even though we literally have no song. And like talks to Hugh Wheeler. Hugh Wheeler is like, OK, what do we need to accomplish in this finale plot wise? And Hugh Wheeler says these people need to talk to get them to go to the weekend in the country. And Prince is like, great. So uh, you two, you come here. You two, you go over there here. And then he's like, Sondheim, we literally have it staged. You just need to look at it and then write the song. I find that That's so funny. funny. Um, one one day you should you should do that with your next show. Be like, hey, um, I know that uh, we have no finale, so I'm just going to stage something and uh, make it fit my choreography. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, listen, there there are so many ways to collaborate. There there's more than one yeah. way to skin a cat. That's true. Yes. Uh, somehow, I guess because you know that Act One finale was just so baller. Uh, investors were like, you know what? Even though there's not really a second act just yet, we're going to give money to this thing and move it to Broadway next year, uh, which they do. And it does. And it's actually a pretty smooth process getting it to Broadway. They don't like, I don't think they run any backers auditions. Uh, they don't have any like, oh, this almost happened or this almost happened. Um, the only major shifts are, you know, Bernadette Peters and Mandy Patinkin were not who they originally envisioned for the leads. They sort of tailored the roles to them once they were cast. Um, there was a scene where Dot was supposed to be naked and Bernadette said, I don't do nude. So they cut the scene. And Sondheim says the only downside to that is the show might've still been running if Bernadette went, it went nude. <laughs> <laughs> People would have lined up to see her naked. Um, not, not wrong. Uh, and, you know, act two was still kind of in development while they were in rehearsals and then previews. They hadn't written children in art, nor had they written... I think lesson number eight before preview started. It was like literally three days before they started previews. And there, Lapine tells a story about like he and Sondheim go into Mandy Patinkin's dressing room at the booth and they literally start previews in three days. And Patinkin's like, you need to give me something. Like there's, I have, there's nothing. This act, the second act has nothing. We need things to play guys. They're going to start walking out. Um, and so they do and it all shapes up and then it opens May 2nd, 1984 at the Booth Theater, and we'll get into what happened after May 2nd in just a second. But in the meanwhile, let's talk the show. Emily, what is Sunday in the Park with George about? Well, um, first of all, it was an excellent history lesson. Oh, thank um, you. Thank you. I, I learned a lot. Um, uh, Sunday in the Park with George is about the creation of the painting A Sunday Afternoon on the Island of the Grand Shop by George Surratt. And the first act chronicles the creation of the painting sort of told through the matrix or the lens of the relationship between the artist George and his mistress muse subject Dot who ends up being the woman in the painting who's sort of in the bottom uh, right corner with the hat. Mm. Um, and 
uh, we also meet all the other characters on various Sundays on this island and we meet, um, you know, these colorful characters. And then by the end of the act, he's completed the painting um, and we see the tableau. And then the second act jumps ahead a hundred years um, to George's great grandson, great grandson, yes. um, also named George, who is an installation artist in the eighties, who is creating these like electric, they're called chromaloons, these sort of like electric, um, you know, color and light uh, machines. Mm -hmm. um, and he's kind of drowning under the weight of what it is to be a contemporary artist with getting a commission and getting money and trying to schmooze people. And he just is feeling, you know, artist's block. And um, he's coming up to the hundred year anniversary of the painting. And he goes back to the island to hopefully find some inspiration. Um, and he ends up having a sort of transcendent moment where Dot from the first act returns to him, mistakes him at, for her George. Um, and all of the characters of the painting kind of appear to him and give him inspiration. Uh, yes, and then they bow to him and Emily cries. <laughs> that is my most favorite part of the whole show. Yes, it is. It is stunning. Um, yeah, it is. There is a big time jump. Something that is very consistent with uh, the two big Sondheim Lapine shows is that the two acts are connected and yet disconnected in the same way. And it is controversial yeah. for many audiences. I think that's why they made Passion intermissionless because they were like, we're not going to get people to walk out <laughs> this time. You will stick for it. <laughs> And then there's like that one lady who's like, watch me. And she's like leaves halfway through the show. <laughs> Don't you tell me what to do. I'll walk out in the middle of Donna Murphy's dying scene. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard to explain for me because I still don't think I can unpack everything that this show does and tries to do. Uh, I can only speak towards what I can connect to. Connect yeah. towards connect. Uh, yeah, I... Sondheim for me is somebody who when he as I'm sort of going through all of his shows and I've been recording everything's out of order so it's I, I it's been hard to kind of figure out a linear path with everything but I do see connections to a lot of stuff um this to me is very much like the older wiser more complete sibling to Merrily in a lot of ways Whereas Merrily is a much rougher and I think a little um, unfair interpretation of art and the artist and success and failure and fatigue and regret and, and fulfillment. Sunday, I think because Sunday tries to go a little more narrow in its um, landscape, which is ironic considering it jumps a hundred years, but just in terms of, the people it you know covers and what exactly it's trying to cover i feel like it's able to mine a lot more depth from the material and the story mm -hmm. than merrily that makes sense yeah i think it's interesting to think of them as sort of companion pieces because while i think that like you know obviously merrily is about writers of musical theater in a lot of ways i think sunday is more autobiographical mm -hmm. in in weird ways like because it is so much about like the experience of trying to capture the world on in this case a canvas but in a like to try and capture the like a moment try and capture the experience of being a human um and that is such a unique 
it's you know it's it's not about what it's like to live the life of an artist it's like what it's like to like be in the moment of art making mm-hmm. um though i also think like fundamentally it's it's also just a love story um but i think uh you know i i i think that there's a lot of i, I mean i don't know again i'm not in his head but i would imagine that that's a lot i think a lot of artists of different uh media see themselves in Sunday in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And it's interesting to me with the two different acts and with the two different Georges, you know, they both try to connect, but in different ways. Whereas act one, George has, you know, a well of creativity is not really, he does not suffer from being unable to create. It's his inability Mm -hmm. to connect to people and to have, and to sort of, understand them the same way he understands what he's trying to do whereas act two george is weirdly very good at connecting with people you see that and putting it together he's able to schmooze and if not necessarily in a real and lasting way he's at least able to fake it um but it's the inability to tap back into uh himself as an artist and what he's been trying to do since he started yeah uh and yeah absolutely Thank you. Um, I appreciate you agreeing with me. <laughs> uh, so, okay. What would you say is the ultimate song in Sunday for you? Is it move on? Yeah. I mean, I think, yes, yes, it would have to be. I think move on is like the transcendent moment. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's the, it's the, like, I will never not cry. I will never not like just, uh, completely I mean it 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 comes down to the we've always belonged together mm-hmm. culmination I mean for me though it's it's a toss-up because it's between move on and it's between the act one finale because I think that is like one of the most beautiful pieces of music just music that's ever been written and and like the success of being able to like vocalize the painting which is like such a strange task but Mm -hmm. like that you hear it and you you feel like you're on this island and um so I would say move on or the act one finale Sunday the act one finale is interesting because I was reading Frank Rich's review in 1984 of the original production and he said he verbalized what I never was really able to which was that act one ends not because any of the plot lines have been resolved, but because the painting has been finished, which is, I think why a lot of, I think it's why a lot of people do walk out or did walk out of the show at the time because act one sets up all these characters that are in the painting and their plot lines and, you know, has Dot and George's sort of romance and then falling out and almost but not getting back together and then her leaving and nothing is resolved. And so act one ends. And even though this beautiful finale has just happened, I think a lot of audiences were probably confused and a little irritated that the stories quote unquote did not have any kind of uh, resolution or, or an inkling that there was going to be a resolution. Yeah. I mean, it's so much about like, it's so much the world through George's eyes, right? Like these people, mm-hmm. we only see them when he sees them. Like we don't, we don't see what happens when they leave his field of vision, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see that in the in the very beginning of the show when he's like, "I don't like this tree," and he erases it, and the tree disappears on the set. So it's like we're we're in his 
in in basically like his box of vision is in his painting and and so the, the the painting is about capturing this moment this this you know and and these stories are not they don't like yes they don't get resolved because that's not what he's capturing he's not writing the arc of all of these people he's capturing this moment with all of these tensions and all of these conflicts between people um and 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 like and 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 the, the like perfection of the incompleteness of it is mm -hmm. i think like part of what george is capturing and therefore what we're seeing because george is our protagonist right so george is like when he finishes the painting that's the mission It's interesting because the writing does reflect that all the characters in the painting are intentionally two-dimensional. None of them ever get really more than a couple of shades to who they are. And I was editing the Company episode this morning, and it's very similar to Company where Bobby kind of views all of uh, his friends in a similar way that George kind of used the characters in the painting, which is a way to sort of mentally file human beings of like, okay, here is Amy. Amy is very high strung and has a lot of anxiety and thus like, you know, X, Y, and Z. And so the audience only sees Amy in those bold uh, colors because that's how Bobby views Amy. The difference is with Bobby, Bobby does it to kind of shape shift himself because Bobby wants to be liked by everybody. So Bobby kind of changes a little bit about himself with each couple that he's with uh, mm -hmm. to always be liked. It's how Bobby can be friends with someone like Joanne and Amy at the same time. Uh, mm -hmm. The dip with George, it's so that way he can kind of arrange the world in a way that he can create something which is what he talks about in mm -hmm. beautiful pretty is what the eye arranges what uh, what the eye arranges is what's beautiful yeah right? yeah well and you see it also like um right before uh finishing the hat when he's sort of going through his sketches mm -hmm. and he's like second bottle ah oh, she looks for me like he goes through and it's like these little snippets these like little phrases of that he's caught in his time on the island and he's distilled these people who are complex human beings and are having complex human interactions. There's affairs going on, there's betrayal, there's all sorts of things happening, but he's distilled them down to this moment. And we'll talk about when we get to hot up here that like, then you flip the table and the person's like, well, I don't wanna just be this moment. I have a whole life and for like, who are you to say I am just who I am in that moment? Mm. And the answer is an artist and he got to, and he gets to do that because that's, his prerogative as someone who paints but but yeah he, he is taking these people and distilling them down to ah she looks for me yeah or, ah, he looks for me and you know um you and me pal and and all these like one moments that he can frame and place exactly like you said control it and put them in a world yeah and on the positive end of that we sort of see why it's worth it in a way because Dot in the first number, Sunday in the Park with George, the title song, as one might say, uh, is her posing for George for the painting. And she's learning how to concentrate, which 
she doesn't really do in that whole number. She's she's trying she she mistakes concentration for being still uh, and not moving. And it's about being present. It's about focus. It's um, it's all and sort of being centered. But rather than do that at sort of the breaking point of the song, rather than do any of that, she just escapes her own body and sort of exists outside of herself in order to kind of be still, which is a wonderful coup yeah. of theater, uh, but does not necessarily mean that Dada succeeded at being uh, focused. Point is, in that moment where she breaks out of herself um, to, uh, and tries to concentrate, she talks about why she's with George and why she has been with other artists, which, which is to say that she wants to be remembered. She wants to be captured. And it helps when the person who's capturing you, you like what they make. And she likes what George makes. She thinks that he's really good as an artist. And the idea of not only inspiring great work, but being included in it is something that is so delicious to her. If you want instead when you're dead, some more public and more permanent expression of affection, you want a painter, poet, sculptor, preferably if you were if you pay attention the seed has been planted of that um of uh, how this of how this foundation that they have with each other will break very shortly because while she does love him and love what he does which is why she's with him mm-hmm. the fact that she'll never get through to him and the fact that she thinks she ever could is going to be sort of the breaking point for them as a as a couple because he has to finish the hat instead of taking her to the follies yeah which a six-year-old me took a lot of issue with mm-hmm. um but yeah i mean it's interesting because she says i think like one of my favorite lines in the whole play is in the second act when she comes back and she says um you taught me all about concentration. At first I thought that meant being still, but I would come to learn that it was so much more. You taught me to be where I was. And then she says, I thought the world could be perfect, but I was wrong. Um, and and then similarly in beautiful, like George has this whole thing where he's like, I'll make it beautiful. You watch while I revise the world. And it's sort of like they, they both have this, like this, like, I guess like we all do this like obsession with like the world being something, but George kind of knows that that won't exist in real life. And he's going to go ahead and make it on paper and, mm-hmm. and Dot really just wants it to like, wants her world to be perfect and has to learn that like, that's never going to be true. Mm-hmm. So like, it's interesting that they both kind of want that same thing, but they just get it in totally different ways. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's interesting because they talk the whole concept of art and what it's about and why it's there and why people do it and why we enjoy it. It's different for everybody. And the show has various perspectives on that. Uh, you know, for someone like Jules, it's to be liked, make a make a living off of it. Uh, for George, it's because he literally has to and to find a way to make the world beautiful in one concise way. For Dot, it's to be captured forever. It's to be immortal in a way. For George's mother, it's to capture the world before it changes again. Because as someone who's coming later in her life, she has seen the world change. They, there's a... Uh, 
I won't say it's a plot device, but something that is discussed in the first act is how the Eiffel Tower is being constructed. And George's mom is very pissed off about that. Uh, This, you know, ugly contraption in the middle of Paris, like why? And she says in beautiful, like it keeps changing and draw it all and, and capture it as it is now before it changes again. And the downside of that is she views the past, like many people, views the past as better than it actually ever was, only because it's what she knew and she was able yeah. to kind of live on from it. Uh, yeah. The danger of, of what's coming uh, frightens her. And that's, I, I think that is why in that song, she uh, maybe doesn't understand why George needs to create but she supports it for that reason does that make sense yeah totally i have a question though which is do you think that dot wants to be immortalized do you think that that's i don't think well i don't think like dot has a fear of death if that makes sense it's not like she's like but do you think that's why she loves being drawn i think it's part of it i think the idea of being i don't think she thinks of it as like literally being immortalized i think she likes the idea of being a part of something that's being created. I don't know. It's hard. I don't know if I'm, if I can word it properly because the word immortalize, you know, we think of Voldemort. We think of no, the no, no, but I think there's like, there's something about like being immortalized, being making a mark on the world, like those sort of things. I I just always thought like, I don't think I've never really thought of Dot as having like feelings that sort of grand. Like, I, I feel like she, I feel like she, she likes to be drawn because she, likes to be looked at by him she loves him and she wants him to watch her and look at her and there's something like sexual about that and and like I I, she wants to be close to him and and she loves him and she loves his eyes and what they can create and she loves his painting and so to pose for him is to be a part of it Mm -hmm. um and so I like I, I think it's more about her relationship with him than it is to her relationship with art because she sings that whole like it um well if you instead when, when you're dead once on public or in permanent expression of but she sings that's the part of the song where she's like sort of making fun of people mm-hmm. where she's like you know if you're a model you want a painter poet like you know like oh if you, you want to be yeah. immortal if you want to be forever carved in stone you know but then it slows down and she tells you what her and she goes to your eyes george i love your eyes george and so it's like to me that's her truth which is like i just want your eyes on me Mm -hmm. and that's the i could look at him her forever i think george is specifically that feeling for her what we learn is that there were other artists before him yeah well being a mistress to an artist was like a profession basically yeah at the time yeah it was was was, like yeah it was like on your facebook yeah, it was like a weirdly like socially acceptable thing. I think the difference with George is that it's not just the artist du jour. It's like she actually loves him. Well, yeah, and, that's, and she loves his painting. Yes, that's well, that's why I hate using like the I hate using the word different because I feel like we've just we overuse it so much for like, well, this one's different, he's different, she's different. But yeah, no, that's why George is different. I do think that it's part of what dot uh why dot was with artists before george not i don't think it's the sole reason i think the idea of uh inspiring artists of being drawn had that sort of 
sensual feeling to it of being a part of something. I think the Mm -hmm. idea of being captured forever itself is already like really enticing. Uh, And then with George, it all kind of shifts where all that stuff is still true, but it's all secondary to the fact that it's him. Uh, Yeah. yeah, So when you ask if I think Dot wants to be immortalized, the short answer is I do. I think it's like number five on the list. And with George (laughs) and with George, it becomes like number eight. So that's all. It's not number one, but I do think it's on there. I think it crosses my mind. I love the that bridge part of Sunday in the Park with George, your eyes, George, I love your eyes, George. And it becomes a theme for her. Hello, George, where did you go, George? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm going to move on from the song No Life because while it's a fun little ditty, I don't think much about it. Uh, I do like... Okay. I do like the shade that the nurse says when Yvonne and, and Jules come on. She goes, there's that famous artist. What is their name? I can never remember his name. I just think it's <laughs> a nice little shade from Lapine and Sondheim. It's like, oh yeah, you're popular. Hmm, no one can remember your name. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I just think that's fun. Color and Light is perhaps for me, the song that best encompasses the creative process in this show and especially captures the pointillism effect that we were talking about earlier, right? Where, yeah. where we really see George working on the piece. Yeah, it's also weirdly the the most uh, potent example of their relationship that we get. Like we get Sunday in the Park with George at the beginning, but what makes their relationship so specific which is what he's going to sing about in finishing the hat is that he disappears into these other worlds of color and light when he's painting and the only human being who is able to bring him back down to earth is her mm-hmm. right and so when he he's like so lost in his red 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 orange and then he comes out to get more paints and he stops dead when he sees her and he starts to describe her look at her forever with that mirror what does she see and then it culminates in this, I could look at him, her forever. And that's like, that is their relationship. That is that is what makes it so unique, what makes it work and what makes it not work is, and we actually get to see in real time this, we see her bring him back down, you know, back to this world from that. Um, and so it is, yes, it is this like incredible, moment of the creative process but it is also this incredible relationship moment between the two of them because while he is lost forever in the pointillism you know she's powdering herself with the exact same rhythm there is artistry to what she is doing as well Mm -hmm. absolutely i'm glad you brought up the the powdering there's a wonderful moment in the original production and it's captured on video really perfectly when she's powdering herself at first that's how the song starts the do 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 And when she finishes her little speech, George has many secrets. She dabs her mirror with her, uh, uh, what's it, her poof, her like powder poof, whatever Mm -hmm. it's called, at the same time that he's doing it on the painting. And it's just a great symmetry. It's 
it's great it's so great and you like you really like like sh- there is an artistry to her existence as well and i just like i a, i just love like giving her that like respect and mm-hmm. that like you know but i i also think just it creating that symmetry between the two of them and making them these like parallel people and you look inside the eyes pink lips the red cheeks and you catch him here and there wide eyes studying the round but face the tiny cups in all the parts and none of the holes so you want him Having seen a couple of productions of Sunday now, it is something that interests me when I watch certain dots who don't really embrace that childlike energy at the beginning and kind of go more dry and subdued. I guess maybe to kind of lean into the fact that this is a serious work, but there's also a great deal of joy and humor to the show that people don't tap into. Totally. I think like the levity and the like humor and the, yeah, like that like childishness to Dot is so crucial. It's also why she is able to bleed the way that she does in, in like we do not, like she has to like cut herself open and bleed on the floor for him. Mm-hmm. And, and like that only comes from someone who like hasn't yet learned how to not do that, mm-hmm. you know? And so there, she has to kind of be, whether like age young or just emotionally young, that's a huge part of her. I do remember you saying when I asked you in the last episode, like, what is it that you most want from your dot? And you said, I need my dot to bleed. I need her to bleed. Yeah, that stuck with me forever because I've seen many a dot who haven't done that. And everything is open to interpretation, right? Like you can bring yourself to the But there are certain things that just are inherent in the character. And it's less about interpretation and more about blatantly ignoring something for your own uh, to do something different. Like you're, when people, okay, so <laughs> ah, I find sometimes, and I talked about this with Into the Woods, uh, and I'm going to try not to give too much away because that episode comes out the week after this one, even though I've already recorded it. <laughs> I think that the PBS recording of Into the Woods is both the best and worst thing to ever happen to that show because it can- No one will ever be able to do it. <laughs> yeah, okay. it's, well, it's, it's the most- it's the most iconic and perfect representation of that show's material in terms of mining it for humor and for pathos. And basically it leaves other people in two camps, either like, well, I guess we just do what they did because it was successful or people who go like, we have to do something different. And they ignore the material in favor of trying to be so boldly different from what we've ever seen before. And so many things get lost by doing that. So many productions of Into the Woods become these over-stylized and over-designed productions that then become absolutely no fun whatsoever and have zero emotion to it. And there's a lot of humor to Woods. You haven't lived until you've seen the production of Into the Woods that was done when I was in college that was set in a refugee camp. <laughs> I think Lucas McMahon brought that production up when he was on the podcast like three years ago. Yeah, yeah, and like, wasn't the giant like gunshots of of shooting people in the refugee camp? Yeah, yes, the giant was like in a in like a guard tower. I mean, I can't really remember, but it, I all I remember was that if you died in the story, you died like for real. It's 
There's it was college. If you can't do that in college, like no, in college, you do that. college like, is where you experiment with your sexuality and with Sondheim. That is what you <laughs> exactly. That's where you make take a bold swing. But to your point about like things being burned in your brain, I think maybe part of the reason I think part of the reason that I'm like so passionate about dot having to bleed, as I say, is like one, I just I think that's part of the character. But two, like I grew I saw it first from Bernadette and like mm. she bleeds she like that's what she's known for is she Mm -hmm. like she just like shreds herself and wears her heart on her sleeve and like doesn't hold back and like once you've seen someone do that it's like really hard to accept anything less and I think because going back to the woods thing and connecting it to Sunday because it's become so analytically performed and staged now and this is sort of the double-edged sort of Sondheim is uh and I talked about this with Merrily, um, I went to a college where, you know, we were not allowed to do Sondheim until our senior year. And even then it was like final semester because he was the master and we were not prepared yet to work on him. And, you know, Sondheim, like every writer is meant to be performed. It's meant to be sung and acted and done in context of, you know, whatever the show you're doing. And the only way to really get that across is to just do it. And you can, we, we, we're analyzing it now and these things have to be discussed when you're working on it. But there comes a point with a lot of Sondheim productions after the originals where they become these sort of hyper intellectual analo- yeah. analytical versions. And we, we the emotions get removed and the joy gets removed. And there's so much joy and humor in that original production that I think people forget about. Totally. I I could not agree more. And I think that's part of my, um, like, why I am so adamant that, yes, it is a story about art. It is a story about the importance of art. It's a story about the process of art. It is all of those things. It's a story about the art. It is also a love story. And that is, like, ultimately what what is the core of the show, is the relationship. Like, the apex of the emotional arc of that show is, is, Dot saying we've always belonged together. Mm-hmm. Like that, it's not him saying, and now I've found in, like artistic inspiration. Like that is not the the emotional apex of the show. Mm-hmm. The emotional apex of the show is their relationship. And that actually came from um, when I, I directed the show in college. It was the first show I ever directed because I thought it would start out like, really easy. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, you did spend the majority of your life at that point thinking about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I actually didn't want to direct it. I pitched some other things and they were like, why don't you do Sunday? And I was like, no, Sunday has to be like the culmination of my entire career of my whole life. And they were like, why don't you just do it now? You're like, um, I think I'll do something simpler like Showboat or Porgy and Bess. And they were like, yeah, how about exactly. Sunday? Exactly. Um, no, and so when I when I directed in college, I uh, I wrote a letter to Steve again, and I said like I don't know if you remember me, but I wrote you this letter when I was six, and like would you be willing to talk to me a bit about the production? Um, and he was very gracious, and I, I you know I I got to sit down with him for a little while, and I was like all it was the first show I'd ever directed. I was like all of like 18, 19 or something. And I sat down with him and I was like, okay, here are all my ideas. And like, here's my thoughts. And like, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do this. And he was like, that all sounds really cool. And like, go on, like do it. That's great. But like- Pop off this. Yeah, I was like, awesome. But like, 
just remember that like the show is not about art. The show is about an artist mm. and the show is about, and we talk about art because that is what is going on in the mind of our main character, but it is a love story. It is a story about a man's relationship with a woman and he makes art. So we're going to talk a lot about art. And I thought that that, I mean, for me as a young director who like didn't know what I was doing was like incredibly helpful. But I also just think like that is to me what like almost the most important aspect of the show is like if you can really sell me on that relationship, mm-hmm. I will cry at the end regardless. <laughs> The reason why it's theater and not film is that we are allowed to kind of exist in this suspended metaphor, right? Like we we know it's not real because we're sitting in the room with you and like mm. we're watching this black box dressed up to look like whatever. So there's like an inherent suspension of disbelief that is required. And so to me, it's like the theatricality is is like the main, like one of the most powerful tools of the theater. I would say it's like your two most powerful tools are like the 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 way you use theatricality and an actor's performance. Mm-hmm. And it's like those two things in tandem is like what make theater theater and not any other storytelling um, media. And so, you know, and things can happen that would never happen in real world with these incredibly real world emotions and yes. experiences. 100%. That is why musical theater is such a tricky art form to do. But when it's done well, it's so mind blowing. It's, I mean, I have not brought it up in like five episodes. So I'm going to do it because I've earned the right. The 1994 revival of Carousel. <laughs> yes. I hate that I'm so fucking predictable, but. <laughs> Screw it. Yeah, that production was a very this this it was what it was was the design was so stylized and conceptual, but the acting was very realistic. And so it lived in this theatrical musical world, but it hit close to home because the people who lived in that world were so understandable. Right. Um and that's that is for me why that production is Mecca and why, you know, I'm sure like the original Sunday is Mecca for you. It's because that original design was also, you know, very stylized, very theatrical very, with really yeah. human performances. Totally. And totally. And like that's where like an audience's brain gets to run wild. Right. Because mm-hmm. you're like you're taken on the emotional journey with like with your heart, you know, mm-hmm. and then your brain gets to like analyze the themes and gets to experience and it also, frankly, just like makes emotions more powerful when you're also in this theatrical space that's like elevating feelings and elevating thoughts and yeah I mean totally yeah I love that you were able to call me out five seconds ago (laughs) you just you knew I just feel like as long as I've known you and I don't know if the people who are listening know that I went to camp with you so I've known you since you were like a wee wee child Mm -hmm. but um yeah you've just always talked about the 1994 revival of always it's well same thing with you and sunday like there are certain things that to us just like hit so close to home and i'll bring it up forever and ever until i see more things match it in my eyes um yeah totally that's all that's all it really is the things the things you see that like burn on your brain they Mm -hmm. stay there forever absolutely especially if you catch them at a young age like i think things that i loved when i was like 
a, like a 12, 13, like those things are never, I'm never going to not love, even though they were like so stupid, but I'm like, like Jessica Simpson's first album is always going to be like the most incredible thing that anyone's ever made. <laughs> and I don't care what anyone says. How dare like, you? For, it was like forged in the crucible of like my youth. I recently rewatched Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen for the first time since it came out in theaters. I saw that shit opening weekend and I'm sitting there watching with my mom and my mom's like, this movie's kind of stupid. And I was like, yes, but I love every single second of it. Yeah, of course. It's like center stage. You're like, this is a perfect piece of cinema. <laughs> like, I don't care what you have to say. 100 percent speaking of the 1994 revival of carousel same director yep. <laughs> nick heider you you think i don't know oh honey i know <laughs> uh and they do the mcmillan romeo and juliet in that speaking they of carousel do. yes That's yes true. yes yes uh but we're gonna move away from that because the only <laughs> you all don't want to talk about sweet kisses jessica simpson's first album we can talk about jessica simpson we just can't talk about carousel anymore uh all I have to do is mention smile now and all my listeners are like, oh my God, PTSD. Uh, just all the things that I always bring up all the time. But I haven't mentioned either in a really long time in this series. Right. Well, let's, oh. let's move on then. <laughs> let's move on. Um, you know, I think I talked about this with you the last time, but you know what song I love? And it's a kind of random song to love, but it's gossip. I just love gossip. I think it's such so much fun. I love the two Celestes. Um, They're great. I do yeah. remember from our last conversation that you... <laughs> You have a you have a very very hot take on, on the soldier. soldier. Yes, I've, I'll we'll bring up my hot take again in a minute. But yes, those two Celestes, all they want to do is find themselves some some eggplant, and that's yeah. it's it's a fun it's a fun narrative. I love them. those Celestes. They make me laugh. She how did Doc end up with the baker? She knows how to make dough rise. Yeah, and when they're like trying to fish. (laughs) They're trying to make fishing sensual. Those two actresses in the original really fucking kill it. Yeah, it's such a great part for like a young comedian. Like it's so, you can really have a lot of fun. When I did it in college, my, this actress uh, that I'm obsessed with and always have been, her name is Royer Bacchus. She played one of the Celestes and she, um, I should say that when we did Sunday in college, it was during the swine flu uh, epidemic. So, mm-hmm. you know, similar times. Sure. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, everybody except for five people in the cast had swine flu. So I had to tech the show with five people. Also, I had never teched anything before and I didn't really know what that meant. So I was like, well, I don't know what I'm doing here. But um, when we finally got the full cast back and she, ca- she, during it's hot up here, she was holding the bouquet of flowers and she coughed into the flowers on the beat right before her line. So it was like, <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> the soldiers have forgotten us. And I was like, that is art. It's good to be together again. See, I told you they were odd. Don't slouch. He took my glasses. You've been eating something sticky. I put on rouge today, too. Don't you ever take a bath, nurse? Hey, hey, I can. I can. It's the practice with the mother. I heard that. Do you like tall grass? I do. I hate music. It's hot up here. Any thoughts on the day off? That's, a, I feel like, the most skipped song on this show for a lot of people. Mm, that's a good question you should ask all your guests. What's the song you skip on the album? Oh, I guess I should. I've never asked that before. You're the first. So this is what a wonderful new question to ask more than halfway through this series. What's your most skipped song on this on this score? That's a really good question. I don't know. It might 
No, because I like the taking the day on Sunday. Like, I really like that. It's like you, kind of, you, you, you dance out to that at the gym. Yeah, it's like it's a bop. You really do love this show if you're like, that's a bop. It's, it's, it's a bop. Yeah. That and Jessica Simpson. Someone um, asked me, um, oh, uh, it was, you, know, you know who was? It was Charlotte. Charlotte was like uh, with night music. She was like, do you not skip over perpetual anticipation? I'm like, I like it. I think it's a bop. Yeah, I don't know that I skip anything, but I guess if I were to skip something, it would. No life. Yeah, I guess it would be no life, but I like no life. No life is fun. I love it really does establish Jules and Yvonne's relationship where she's just sort of a yes man to him. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, it, and it and it tells you so much about them, about George, about like the world. Like it really, it really does a lot of work. Yeah, for something that um, for all these sort of uh, correct observations that Sondheim can write really wordy things and pack so much into like these really big epic things, he's also really good at simplifying things to their essence, so you get exactly what you need from so little. Yeah, well, it's like weirdly you kind of are like, well, I don't know how you would express this in any less words. Yeah. Like he's, he's just sort of like uses exactly the right. It, it's how I feel about like Aaron Sorkin as well. It's like just uses words as, as uh, like pyrotechnically to reveal something incredibly simple. Yes. You and Charlotte really are sisters because she brought up Sorkin with night music as well. Um, I'm trying to think of other songs. I don't want to go through like absolutely everything unless, I mean, we have actually been making good time. This The episodes in this series are long and we have not hit even, I think, the hour and a half mark yet. So we're so far pretty good. But so we're doing well. We're, do, we're doing pretty damn good and we've covered a lot of stuff already. Um, yeah, I. Everybody Loves Louie is a song that... Ugh, great song. <laughs> great song. Beautiful gowns. It's... I. How would you describe Everybody Loves Louie? I would describe Everybody Loves Louie as uh, Dot trying to convince George, but mostly herself, that she should, that she has made the right decision. Mm -hmm. That's fair. We lose things and then we choose things. Or is it we choose things and we lose things? Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, there is value to being with the person who doesn't make you miserable, even if they are not the most stimulating person. Yeah, not the most exciting. I There's the lyric that Sondheim always points to, which is, um, and then in bed, George, I mean, he needs me. I mean, like, yeah, George. I mean, that is, that is lyrical. Yeah, absolutely. Because for anyone who doesn't know what that means, it, he's using the literal word needs with a K, which is like, you know, massaging dough, meaning that Louis massages Dot in bed. And they, he talks about how that line always got a laugh at Playwrights Horizons and then never got a laugh again on Broadway. And Bernadette Peters had this whole existential crisis. She thought it was her. She lost something when they moved to Broadway. And he's like, it's a different audience. They don't get the joke. It's not you. They're just, they don't understand that it's the K. And on top of that, they don't understand the, misdirect which is when you first say needs the humor of like oh this guy louis over here this sort of really sweet but kind of boring dude has enough passion and fire in him to need someone in bed like to just want to like i gotta have you right now and then the misdirect is like oh no it's not even that he just he massages me he massages my feet yeah well and also like i mean like dough like it's sort of a 
fuck you to George, right? It's like, it's her saying like, I mean, he needs me. I mean, like, dough. Like, no, I mean, he needs me. Like, it's, it's, you know, it's like, it's like talking about your sex life with your, to your ex. Like, it's, it's yeah. kind of a, she's showing off a little. You know, it, you know who I can imagine singing that lyric is Samantha Jones. I mean, he needs me. <laughs> I mean, like, dough. God. Over a cosmopolitan. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. Like if she's dating a baker. Yeah. Oh, it's, you know what it is? It would be if Carrie was dating a baker and Samantha goes, mm, does he need you like dough? I could re- I could honestly bring every Sondheim show to a Sex in the City quote. I'm almost positive. Wow, that's a, that's a fun chapter of this podcast too. Every You have to somehow put every Sondheim show into a Sex in the City episode. Well, I mean, honestly, one could argue that Alexander Petrovsky wasn't 100% a dick. He was just trying to finish the hat. No, he sucked. No, he was he was 95% a dick and 5% needed to finish the hat. Whereas I would say George is 95% needing to finish the hat and 5% a dick. But I would also argue that the difference, and I cannot believe we're having this conversation, is that George is not just finishing a hat. He is finishing her hat. And again, mm-hmm. this goes back to the like, it, it is about art and the creative process and finishing a hat, but it is also about finishing her, her hat. And like, that is the way he shows her that he loves her. He is, that is his love language for lack of a better word. Um, and then when she says later, thank you for the hat, it's an, it's an acknowledgement mm-hmm. of like, of his feelings that he can express, which not to say that six-year-old Emily was right. She should not have stayed. She would have been miserable, but there is an acknowledgement of, the feelings that were there that he's unable to articulate. And when the woman that you wanted goes, if Anthemia felt well, I give what I give. But the woman who won't wait for you knows that however you live, there's a part of you always standing by, mapping out the sky. Finishing a hat, starting on a hat, yeah, well, so, and it's it's an interesting sort of uh, coming off of Everybody Loves Louie into finishing the hat because we have Dot sort of justifying for herself why she left him and mm-hmm. then George wondering why she left him even though he always knew she would. Uh, yeah, you know, when I, not to keep rem- like calling back to this like tiny little production I did in college, but it's just where I like spent the most time with the piece is um, I was able to sit down with Sam Buntrock for like a coffee or something and just sort of asked him a bunch of questions. And, and his piece of advice to me was when you rehearse, everybody loves Louie, have her sing the song to him first. Mm-hmm. And when you rehearse finishing the hat, have him sing the song to her first, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting um, because both are an attempt to connect to the other while the other is not even in the room mm-hmm. like like literally everybody loves to start with starts with where did you go george i've got your eye i want your ear right like so he's literally left but like it is for him and for her to convince herself because i don't think she's like fully there yet but mm-hmm. um and same with finishing the hat it is an attempt to try to explain to her what's going on but he's only able to do it because she's not there um and I thought that was really interesting. And it, and it helps again, like ground the, the 
songs in these like real world experiences rather than like disappearing into these like high concept because like an actor can't play like the creative process Mm -hmm. but you can play like I'm trying to explain to you why I am not good at this Mm -hmm. you know and I I just always remembered that I thought that was really interesting and the song isn't um it's hard to the song isn't like this giant statement of like why it's worth and all these things it's just his personal explanation and it's not even i would argue it's not even an explanation he's just describing like what happened like what what he goes not only like what he goes through but sort of the the fallout that he's keenly aware of it's almost like because until that moment you don't really get the uh inkling that george is aware of what the cost is of him doing what he does and mm-hmm. finishing the hat is the moment where you go oh he's weirdly totally aware um totally yeah and like dot has made a choice of you know even though it hurts it's worth it for me uh or it doesn't even say that it's worth it it's just sort of you know it's just what he it's what he does and it's the and it's the price that he has to pay um I don't know. I'm, I think I'm, the more I'm using words on this song, the more I feel like I'm bungling what I'm trying to say. Well, it's a hard song. And it's, it's like, it has so many layers and it's like kind of firing on like all of these different cylinders simultaneously. Um, But the like big soaring, beautiful parts are about her. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the woman that you wanted goes, or you say to yourself, like, give what I give, but the woman who won't wait for you knows that the, like, those are, that's the, like, the heart, the, like, emotion of this person comes out. And I always, like, I always describe George as, like, a character who is, like, overflowing with feeling, but is, like, but the lid's on. Yeah. So he's, like, it's not that he's, like, cold and not feeling. He's incredibly feeling. He's feeling as much, if not more than Dot, but he's just, like, keeping everything closed which is why he's got this sort of like frenetic kind of charged energy and that's like to me that's that music right like this like big huge soil the woman that you want it goes and then back to this one from that da, 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 da. like he, he like puts the lid back on brings it back down to, like he just contains it all and like you know musically I think that just like reveals so much especially because like as I said like the big emotional sore is about her Fun fact. So I mentioned how senior year, we finally were able to do sound time. We were supposed to pick the songs that we wanted to do. And we had a teacher who was very like, no, I'll tell you what you're doing because I've deemed what's like right for you, which, you know, always a great way to teach. (laughs) And I talked about this with Marilee. I really wanted to do Franklin Shepard Inc. Because... I was that bitch who was like, I want to do a four minute breakdown scene and blah, 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 blah. And I want to, basically I wanted to show off. And I was like, I think that it's, it's this, mo- it's a mo- such a monster song. And I, and I also was like, you know, I have one semester of song time. I want to make it count. Let me attack something so huge and monumental. That's going to take me three months to accomplish. And my teacher goes, no, 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 no. Don't do that yet. Do something else that you can really sort of calm down with. And he goes, you should do finishing the hat. And at the time I went, I don't want to do Finishing the Hell. I want to do Franklin Shepard Inc. Sure. And started working on it. And it is a very difficult song. Not 
because it's not because it's hard to crack in terms of like what it's about about connecting to it but to really kind of do justice to it and the best way i could kind of find my way into it because as i said you know we overanalyze and especially with that point of our schooling Sondheim was like put on such a pedestal that we all were sort of afraid to approach any of the work and it became like how do I study this instead of just doing it and when I just sort of started doing the song and allowed it to kind of just and to allowed myself to sort of just ride along with it was when I felt like I did my best with it because I wasn't commenting on it I wasn't trying to do my own take I was just allowing the song to sort of wash over me and that was a very big lesson for me as a performer. And I was able to use that for Franklin Shepard Inc., uh, which I did eventually get to do. Mazel, so, I'm so proud. Thank you so much. There's a happy ending to this movie. <laughs> There's but, a happy ending to this story, thank God. Yeah, but also I was I was really pleased to do Finishing the Hat. And I, I look back and I'm like, oh, you stupid little bitch. Like, how dare you say, oh, I'm, I have to settle for this song. I think I just, as I said, I really wanted to try something that was like so monstrous in scope in terms of just pure yeah. like energy uh and then to have to like have to calm down to do finishing the hat was its own major challenge and yeah it, i feel like for a lot of young actors with sondheim it's like do less <laughs> it's like it's like the song is doing so much of the work for you that you like interpreting the song is your challenge not like acting the song <laughs> like yeah well it's people People go, you know, it, it's a pendulous swing. You know, people either over sing it, like send in the clowns. They like, you know, drag out the phrases or they go too far the other end of like, I'm really acting this thing. I'm like, right. And now the melody's indecipherable. <laughs> yeah, I had this teacher in college who used to say, just be the person doing the thing. Mm-hmm. And like, you were like, what does that mean? But what she meant was like, don't try to be the person. Don't like do what you think the person is doing. Just be the person doing the thing. Mm-hmm. And it was just this like amazing lesson in simplicity that like you don't have to show me how much work you're doing to interpret the song. Like you can just do the thing mm-hmm. and be the person. And I think that especially for young actors, it's like such a huge lesson. No, you are complete, George. You are your own. We do not belong together. You are complete. We do not belong together. Blood. <laughs> blood. Just blood all over the floor. It's full just on blood. Hair. It's chaotic. Yeah, like like that, that's that's to me the moment where she just like she just opens up. Yeah. And it's such, it is a concise beginning of that in terms of George and at his root where he says, you know, why do you, uh, I cannot give you words. You know what, you know, I cannot give you words, not the ones you need. Um, why do you insist, uh, you must hear the words. And he even says, you know, I care about this painting. You will be in this painting and sort of like, don't, I know what you need. Don't you understand what I am incapable and capable of and it's it's a frustrating song because i understand both of them and i know it's these two people who want the same things from each other but just are speaking such totally different languages uh Mm -hmm. 
there's uh, on Gilmore Girls, uh, there's a podcast about it that I listened to once upon a time. And they talk about how like the frustrating thing of watching Gilmore Girls is like Lorelai and Emily love each other. They just have very different love languages and neither one of them's learning to learn the other language and like not even become fluent, just conversational. Like they just flat out refuse. And that's sort of always the um, tension with them. And I feel like that's very similar to George and Dot where like they do love each other, but how they express it is so different. And Dot wants so much from George. He just just cannot give. And rather than, I guess, understand that in the first act anyway, in the first Mm -hmm. act rather than understand it, she has to go. I have to move on, she says. Yeah. Um, and similar to the bridge and finishing the hat, the music in this song is just like overflowing. The blood is just pouring out. It's not even like leaking. It's just gushing. No. Yeah, totally. And like shout out to Michael Starbanks. The orchestrations of the original production are exquisite. They are indeed. Those strings that the like during the song are just like is, A plus. I, is this the only score of Sondheim's that he does the orchestrations for? I think he does another one. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Because usually it's tunic and this is the first it's the first this is the first time since company that it's not tunic. Yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There are a lot of Jonathan tunic. What was I gonna say? Uh let's talk about it's hot up here for a minute. Mm -hmm. Act two opener. In addition to being an incredibly funny song. Very funny. Very funny. It's also uh, got a point to make. Yeah, so it's a song from the perspective of the people in the painting having been frozen in the painting. So essentially it's like lights up on act two and they're still in the tableau that they were in at the end of act one. Um, and then they it starts with them complaining. And there are a lot of funny things about like, I'm sorry if the smoke from my cigar is bothering you. It never goes out. Yeah, and, I'm completely uh, out of proportion. I'm completely out of proportion. And and everything, but it it is about, you know, talking about this thing about immortality and immortalizing, it is about, you know, what what it is like to be immortalized without your consent, basically. Yeah. To, be, to be forced into this painting next to people you don't like, um, forever remembered as this, as who you were in this moment, mm-hmm. the tensions having not been resolved from act one. So we never get to know what happened to these people um and just and some people are not happy about it yeah <laughs> like, well the soldiers have forgotten them and the soldiers have forgotten them louise and wants her glasses louise wants her glasses and she, uh she's holding yvonne's hand too tight mm-hmm. and the nurse's but, head is to back to the yeah, audience she put on rouge that day and yeah. she can't even be seen no one yeah. can even see my profile yeah. Uh, but on the bright side, the soldier says it's good to be together again with his soldier pal, which leads yeah. to my hot take. <laughs> yes, yes. Here is Matt's hot take about the soldiers. <laughs> I think <laughs> there is some uh, underlying homosexuality in this show. And I brought it up to Emily last time. And she not only, she, she was oh, very I, thrown by it. I, I, w- I just never thought about it before, but... Um, you made some compelling arguments. Thank you. I appreciate it's I often make a compelling argument. They're usually incorrect, but they're compelling. 
well you know and there's like the you know see i told you they were odd like Mm -hmm. you know it's good to be a guy sure yeah there's i feel like it's there uh basically my hot take is so we have all these characters right and we mentioned the two celestes and the celestes really are into a soldier and his essentially mute friend which in the original production is a cardboard cutout uh has been done in other ways since then and we learn that they are very close friends. Uh, the one that speaks kind of speaks for his mute friend as well. And they get divided up with the Celestes. And there's a certain moment of tension with them. One is, you know, he talks about how it's good to be get together again. The Celeste two first says that they're odd in act one. And then in act two, she says, I told you they were odd. And when uh, that Celeste and the speaking soldier get together at the end of act one, apart from their partners and she says oh you know that other soldier was so odd and he blows up at her he is not odd <laughs> and in my mind I, there is, you, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to go down this path yeah in my mind there is maybe it has not been um consummated but i feel like there is some homoerotic feelings between those soldiers sure. feels like that might be like 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 we're saying this is like unresolved you never see what happens next feels like the next scene mm-hmm. if we were to see would be like them going back being like whoa what a day and then like stuff happens yes and some yes yeah, some hands get lost <laughs> under clothing mm-hmm. that is where i'm at and i having spoken to you about it the last time i can't remember what we discussed but having you say like that there's some stuff there makes me more confident in my feelings about it um not necessarily like i would never direct a production of Sunday in the park where these two soldiers were like basically fondling each other and then like hiding it away from people. I would never make it that overt. I just think that, and it's, and it's, you know, part, it's part in the writing how we only really see what George ever sees. So there's so much, there's so many pieces missing intentionally. Uh, but that's just, it's, I think it's very telling that those are the pieces that we see, which they're very dependent on each other and any uh, questioning of their, normalcy whatever that means is taken very harshly by them so maybe there's some homoerotic feelings maybe uh you know they just had a lot of trauma and stick it out together you know like whatever battles they were in was their nom i think this is like one of those great like art moments of you're like wow we could all have different interpretations of the same piece and like there is no correct answer i think this is a this is a great example of that yeah, except Emily, you've known me a long time and you know that I don't like that. I just want to be right. Sure, 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 sure. I'm sure. Ra- I mean, I'm rarely right, but I want to be it all the time. Th- maybe it's because my gay brain loves to read those uh, YA LGBTQ novels where it's like boys in high school going, you're gay, I'm gay. Do you think we might fall in love by the end of this book? And then they do. Uh, yeah. I just Well, because if you meet a fellow gay, you have to fall in love. <laughs> Absolutely. You're the only two gays in your entire state. You're gonna yeah, fall in love. Exactly. Yeah. And it's always like the guy who is the most beautiful thing you've ever seen from across the room. And then 10 pages later, you find out like very flippantly. It's like, yeah, my ex, uh, you know, Joe and I, when we, Joe, but Joe's a, that's a boy's name. Are, where, are you gay? <laughs> what are you talking about? Have you never read these YA LGBTQ novels? No, boy meets boy i was too um, busy reading the hunger games and harry potter again of course you did i mean you can't see but the corner of my bookshelf i've got all these lgbtqia novels red white and royal blue um oh sure 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 that i've read yeah gentleman's guide to vice and virtue 
the the great American whatever uh, Simon and the Homo Sapien Agenda. I just I love those books. They're trash, I'm, but they're great trash. I'm 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 very happy for you. I'm sorry you I haven't so, read them. Thank you so much. <laughs> anyway, I think those have made an impact on my brain. So I view things like that with the soldier, and I'm like, gay. They're the gays. Yeah. Mademoiselles, I am my friend. We are but soldiers. Passing the time in between wars for weeks at an end. Both of them are perfect. You shouldn't have the other. I want the other. I don't want the other either. And after a week spent mostly indoors with nothing but soldiers. Ladies, I and my friend trust we will not offend, which we'd never intend. By suggesting we spend. Oh, spend! This so three major questions for you. And we I, we kind of touched on it earlier, but I want Emily's take because I've spoken a lot on this podcast. Granted, it's my <laughs> podcast, but still, you're my guest and you're mm-hmm. a Sunday expert. Well, why do we have Act Two and why do you think people are so still so resistant to it? Um, I think we have Act Two because that's what the show's about. Like the, the play is about Act Two and Act One is the setup. <laughs> like most plays emily pretend i'm a dum-dum or i'm more no, but, of a dum-dum. but i mean that i mean that i think that a lot of people think it's extraneous and that to me i'm like well no nothing like the story's not over yeah like 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 we, we still need more um like from the perspective of like the two main characters like they we need they've parted ways. Now we need to know how they're going to be either changed by this or grow from it or get rec- or reconcile or something. Um, I also think that like thematically, the themes of the show come out and move on and they come out in the end and they come out and white a blank page or canvas. Like the, the artistic journey of the show is all in act two. And so I, I like, I, I think people, I don't know if people are like really resistant to it, but, but it like, yeah, it's, you jump time, you meet a whole new cast of characters. Like that's, I guess, tricky. I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that's, I do think that the time jump is really the thing that does it is people are like, I just spent an hour and 15 minutes learning about all these other people. And now I have to learn about a bunch of new people. Yeah. And people get very annoyed by that. Um, it's also a completely different, show and act to at least in terms of style the, the sound of the music the the dialogue the whole the whole trajectory changes um but yeah i don't know i th- i have m- my confusion about why people are like act two is extraneous because as you said like act one nothing's resolved all that's really happens is that the painting is finished but that's not an ending because there's as you said the show is about a romance it's a love story and even though we'd never get any resolution with all the other characters, we do need the Dot and George resolution in some way. And that is what yeah. Act 2 is for. Well, and like, it's interesting because like, I guess you could say the artistic journey completes with the creation of the painting, but we don't ever know like the fallout from that. Like yeah. we don't know how he feels about that. <laughs> like how, how like, you know, what mental state he's in at the, at the, and like, yes, it's a new character in act two, but I think you have to think of George in act two as a continuation of George in act one, that they are, they are tied. And so it, it like, to me, there's just so much that act one feels like prologue to mm-hmm. um, that I, I can't imagine thinking act two is not 
necessary. It's absolutely necessary. But, uh, you know, it's the same argument people have with Into the Woods where they go, well, you don't need Act 2. I'm like, you really need Act 2. Well, yeah, and Into the Woods, you really do. Otherwise, just like some fun fairy tales. (laughs) Yeah, well, in a weird way, Act 1 of Sunday in the Park with George and Into the Woods without the second act, and it feels so wrong to use the word because it... But in comparison to other shows, you're like, it would no way be this word. But in terms of the grand scheme of things, act one on its own is kind of shallow. It's this sort of concise uh, story that ends, but doesn't really feel complete. And on its own, you're like, okay, like, yeah, that was that was nice. And I, I guess that was a pleasant hour and a half. And then act two adds a sort of gravitas towards it and uh, and uh larger um scope that really makes it more impactful but i guess because it's such a it's such a pivot in terms of style people get really thrown by it and then resistant towards it maybe i guess yeah i mean i i happen to just like i i think that's such a cool thing to do to like give you the world as you think you know it and then act two be like just kidding and then and then it makes you as the audience member have to sit forward and not and not like take anything for granted and now you're putting pieces together and now you're trying to understand and when things are called back you're in, like it it to me is like a much more enjoyable and active audience experience than to just give you like some more story mm-hmm. um so so yeah I, I don't but I mean I guess yeah if you're like if if the change in style or like that sort of like rehashing of things you thought you knew to be true in the first act like that might just not be your cup of tea might not be your that's cup not that's not that seat is not for your butt that seat is not for your butt i that took me a second to piece those words together yeah um, yeah, well, that's sort of what I really liked about the first revival was that I thought they did a really good job of connecting the two acts in uh, visually speaking. Yeah. Um, well, they had that, that cool device where the painting like moved through time. Yes. Where you saw the, you know what, you know what, you know what, you know what, we kind of talked about the show a lot and we've sort of discussed how it ends and, and him going back to the Island and reconnecting with dot. Let's just, close it out and move on to the legacy so we can talk about that revival and what they did. Great. Fantastic. Um, Sounds good. So the show opens uh, and it's sort of, it's a mixed critical reception. Really only Frank Rich in the Times truly loves it. And he's credited for keeping that show alive because he would write about it all the time and basically be like, hey guys, um, maybe don't see Cats for a fourth time and go see Sunday in the Park for a first time. And... Was Cats well, open? When did Cats yeah. open? It was the year before Cats. Yeah, cool. uh, or sorry, Cats was the year before Sunday, I should say. Uh, or might have been... Yeah, because Sunday opens in May of 84. Cats opens, I think, September of 82. Cool. And wins the 83 Tony. This is why I'm here. This is why we have me here. I do. This is yeah. what my brain does. Great. Um, Sunday wins two Tony Awards. Set design and lighting design. They lose costumes. Uh, do you recall what it loses best musical and score to? Hmm. I know that it didn't lose to Baby. <laughs> it did not. Same year, though. <laughs> That's all I really remember about that year. What did win that year? Was it? Lacage. 
Lacage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Lacage was the big cheese that year. Lacage almost That was the simple hummable tune. Yes. Thing, right? Yeah. We're okay. Yeah, or Jerry Herman's like, there's a rumor that the show tune's dead. It's alive and well. Yeah, he said he won the he won the uh, the Tony he said the Oscar. He won the Tony for best score and he said this is proof that the sim- simple hummable tune is still alive on Broadway and that was considered to be like a dig towards Sondheim, which Herman claims it wasn't and Sondheim has since said he doesn't think it is, but he said at the time that it was said that did come across his brain where he was like, "Well, fuck my drag." Um yeah, I'm sure it wasn't like meant to be like so outwardly shady, but I know that yeah. that's like the lore. Sure. Um, and what's so ironic is like people say that about Sondheim and he's like, I don't write music thinking like it's unhummable. He's like, I play music. I'm like, I think that's a pretty good tune. Like, I think that's pretty hummable. It's also ridiculous. Like, of course it's hummable. Like, have you ever heard like any of some of these songs? They're gorgeous. Like- yeah. Well, what it is, is that um, it's not even that one tune is hummable. He says, he says, and he's very right about it, is that hummability comes from repetition when people say, oh, I didn't walk out humming the score, he's like, a Rodgers and Hammerstein score, a certain song would be reprised a bunch. What made Rodgers and Hammerstein geniuses was that they were able to make those reprises dramatically compelling. Mm. Um, That's interesting. And so, you know, Oklahoma, people will say we're in love and things like that, just have reprises. So you hear it a couple of different times and you go, oh, like that's the song that's stuck in my head. Uh, and it's crazy to me critics would say that i mean critics have always been wrong there was a critic for company when that opened and they're like the score is is, uh, indistinguished and i was like say what you will about company you cannot tell me that that score is not at 1970 was not vastly different from all the scores that came before it you cannot tell me that yeah um same there's a there's a critic who said that the score to annie was um unmemorable and I was like, say what you feel about tomorrow. That shit stays in your head. It's the most memorable song of all time. <laughs> yeah, for better, for better and for worse. Like, it's just, it's yeah. stuck in there forever. Um, so the show closes after a year and a half. And I don't think it's really brought up much throughout the rest of the 80s, is it? Like, it doesn't really pop up again until more than 90s, I'd say. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I first saw tour. it after the video. I think the first time I saw it was when they did the Kennedy Center Sondheim celebration, mm-hmm. um, I went down to DC and saw it. And I think that was the first time I saw it live. That would track. And then and then I saw the menu production in London and then on Broadway. Yes. Uh, the, they do record Sunday in the Park with George for PBS and broadcast it. That's sort of starting a trend with Sondheim, I believe starting with Sweeney and then going through Sunday, then Into yeah. the Woods and Passion. And that video definitely lives on. Uh, it goes to London, opens the national where it wins the Olivier for best musical. So that's nice. It's up against yes. Into the Woods. So that's a fun year. Just a, just a wow. fun factor, people. Sondheim against that's Sondheim. Uh, and then, yeah, it, it really kind of, I don't want to say has a comeback, but really kind of rises in the ranks in the 2000s with the Kennedy Center production and then with the Menier Chocolate Factory production, which then comes here. And then we get another revival, which is a transfer from City Center. I want to talk about the Menier production for a second because that's the one you and I have both seen. Um, yeah. Well, we both saw the City Center one as well, but I want to talk about Menier instead because, because that's just who I am. Uh, what's, what did that production do and why do we think it was so successful from your Sunday perspective? Yeah, I mean, so for those of you who didn't see it, it was basically a giant white box on stage and it was all done with rear projections. So like 
you know, it started at the beginning, you said white and you saw a, like with a pencil mark, a horizon line be drawn across all three walls of the stage. And then it was sort of, you watched it be sketched in and over the course of the act, it got filled in with more paint and went from, you know, pencil sketch to, you know, big blotches of color and sort of went through all of the different like Surat studies. If you look at this, the studies for um, the completion of the painting. Um, and then in act two, you saw the completed painting and it sort of like zoomed out. And as it did, you saw silhouettes of people crossing in front and you watched their costumes change from the 1880s through time up until the 1980s. Um, I think that like, it, it, was such a, it was such a brilliant visualization of the story. And it was also like such a way to modernize kind of the concept of the original production, which had these like panels and cutouts mm-hmm. of the, um of the bits of the painting and and you I mean you talk about like being in George's mind and seeing only what he sees like his world is only complete when he completes it you know so it was it was very cool to to be in a world that was drawn with pencil sketch and you watched it um complete and you know so much of the story is about that and is a visual journey and so I thought it was like you know it was a really really successful way to do that Mm -hmm. uh were there things about that production that uh you would have maybe done differently um I I again like I'm I think that the show has to operate on two levels simultaneously. Like it has to achieve this like artist journey. It has to achieve these like conceptual ideas. It also really has to deliver on the emotional front. And I think it, you you could argue that that production kind of, ha- the perspective of that production was to put one above the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that like, in terms of an, a director, like, achieving the vision that they set out to like it is a slam dunk (laughs) like yeah it is such a successful execution of that idea that it's kind of hard to like nitpick at things that you know could have been better yeah I've have when I saw it I was very I I came to know that production first first from you because I remember you seeing it and then just being like holy shit that show and then I got the cast album with Daniel Evans and Jenna Russell and I really loved their performances on that cast album. I thought that, I thought he was a surprisingly emotionally potent George. uh, And I really liked her dot. It's one of my favorite uh, fully realized performances on a cast album on stage. I thought I was still there. Maybe it was just because the, the studio 54 is not necessarily the largest of theaters, but there's something about it where when you're sitting in the mezzanine, it feels very cavernous. Yeah, Um, I agree with that. And so sometimes the, heat from the stage doesn't always make itself all the way out to the audience so when, where I saw it was which was in the mezzanine with a bunch of high schoolers who were dumb uh I didn't always get that bleeding heart from it but that's not to say that it wasn't there it just wasn't traveling as far yeah I think that that's fair and I think like you're with such an amazing visual feast mm-hmm. and like you're always in danger of like that being the event Absolutely. Um, and uh, and not to say that they weren't giving like incredible performances, which they really were. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think like striking that balance is, is tricky. But 
I mean, I just, I loved that production so much. It was a beautiful production. It wasn't as funny as I wanted it to be. That's the one big takeaway I remember was I didn't laugh as much as I did watching the original. Uh, I think James Lapine is a very underrated comedic director. He's able to get so many laughs out of things that I think we always forget about. Uh, but yeah, I, he always talks about with Woods, like direct the drama in act one and then direct the humor in act two. And that's sort of what's going to connect the two together. And I feel it's the same of, of Sunday, you know, the drama is there and the artistry is there really try to like find the people and find the humor because that's what's going to keep audiences engaged and open mm-hmm. to listening. Totally. Uh, totally. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, we, we, we both saw the most recent revival. I had issues with it. Uh, I know part of it was that it was just so quickly put together and it was just about like it was a concert yeah it was a concert that was semi-staged uh I think another issue I just had with that one was uh you know I didn't get a lot of emotion from it but I will say uh a couple of things I thought some of the supporting performances were so stellar that I was actually blown away that it was put together as quickly as it was I remember really loving Aaron Davies Yvonne I loved Ashley Park's Celeste number one um, and that chromolium section, I thought was stunning. Yeah, the chromolium was cool. I also genuinely thought Jake Gyllenhaal was wonderful. I liked him. I, I thought he was quite good. I felt, I don't know if I said it in the last episode, I felt, and people can come for me if they want, I'm going to try to say this as nicely as I can. I felt that Jake Gyllenhaal, his perspective on the character was so correct. I did not think he had all the stage musical theater tools to express it as well as he could have whereas Annalie Ashford had all of the tools but I did not care for her interpretation so I liked his interpretation and I thought that there were some things about his expression of it that was lacking whereas I thought she expressed exactly what she wanted I just didn't like what her her interpretation was that's interesting yeah um I thought that was a nice enough way to say that right yeah yeah process rude I don't think so. Okay, great. Well, I try, I try not to be rude these days because I'm plenty rude already and I'm crass. But when it comes to a negative opinion on something, I try to word it in a way that can still be um, heard and not thought of as like catty or crass. Mm-hmm. Uh, because just because we don't like something doesn't necessarily mean we think it doesn't have any value or that um, or that we're being nasty. We can not like something and have it uh still you know build upon a larger foundation once again i just put a bunch of words together out of my ass to try to make it sound like a sentence wow feel like you did great what does sunday in the park with george uh how does what does it contribute to theater and that sounds like a really big question but i but i think the best way i'm i don't know how to say it any more specifically but i think you can answer it in any small way that you want Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think that, like, it is most artists' favorite musical. (laughs) Like, most, you know, I think it is, like, one of its big contributions, and I don't know if this is, like, to the canon, but it's, like, it has inspired a lot of people to make art, and I think that that's incredibly valuable. Um, And to feel seen by other people making art. Um, I also think that, like, you know, I think you, this could be said about a lot of the Sondheim shows, but particularly the 
the Lapine collaborations is it like it sort of elevates to a certain level to like a, a slightly higher level of conceptual conceptualism and like these sort of like large intellectual ideas and and the ability to kind of like tackle those um kind of gave us permission to think about theater and I, I mean I think like largely that's like Sondheim's contribution is like basically said oh you can like talk about these like really big ideas and really complex ideas in this mm -hmm. art form um but it, like there's a certain amount of like intellectualism and kind of um which I just I think is really exciting and and, and I, I think it does it in a way that isn't condescending and it does it in a way that doesn't make you sit in the audience going like I'm just like not smart enough to get this like it's really inviting because it, you are so emotionally invested in these characters that you're sort of like brought on this journey um which I think is like a very underrated skill <laughs> to like approach these themes in a way that is uh, accessible mm -hmm. without being dumbed down but without being like uh out of reach yeah there's there are certain writers who i feel are very talented but maybe either forget that there's an audience out there or they resent the fact that there's an audience out there and sunday is an interesting case where i think it has a good balance of what sondheim and lapine are trying to do as well as understanding what an audience that's new to the work will handle and sometimes it pushes the audience a little further than maybe they're willing to go and then we'll come back and give them a moment to relax and then go back and forward and yeah but that's like that's that act to experience right like yeah it's uncomfortable to to like start act two and be like nobody i know is here <laughs> like yeah. that is uncomfortable but but it also like if you just like breathe th through it you'll get to know these characters and you'll understand how they relate to the characters we know and you'll also get like what we're trying to say and like that that's what I find that's what I find so exciting about it and also their collaborations and so much of the Sondheim work is that it it doesn't let you sit down like it doesn't let you be like entertain me like, mm -hmm. it requires you to lean forward and, and and engage with it um and that that's just really exciting to me yeah it's not impenetrable these shows it's not at all it's it it takes it doesn't even take that much effort it just takes um, your antenna being up and being open to absorbing it. Right. That's all. Uh, right. There's so, and anything that like isn't immediately understood, you can come back to it at some point, but there's enough about it that is, un uh, that is understandable that, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why so many people get closed off by Sunday. It has to do with like, well, I mean, I don't know, but, but I, but I think like people go to stories for different reasons at different times. And sometimes mm -hmm. that's not what you want. And that's great, but like sometimes that is, and and this is a perfect opportunity for you to really engage with something. People go, oh, we go to the theater to escape, and that's partially true. But also, I mean, I think that Sunday offers that as well. Like Act One is an escape from where you're at. It's 1800 totally. Paris uh, in the mind frame of a painting. Like, I'm sorry, is that your everyday of Wednesday? But I, but no, of course, I completely agree, and I also think like like not everything has to appeal to everyone like you know what i mean like that like there there are butts for all sorts of seats yeah um, tiktok you know tiktok mean? hanny tiktok has taught me so much so it's like i i kind of feel like it's it's okay if that's yeah. not your jam well, and that's like, that's great and that's what we learn with jewels and you know i talked about this with merrily a bit like when you try to be palatable to everybody the only thing that's pal palatable to everyone is 
whatever is bland and what you can project right. onto it. Because all really you can do as a maker of storytelling or as an artist in the case of George is like, look at the world through your own two eyes mm-hmm. and how you see it and try and like say something about it or replicate it or represent mm-hmm. it or, or you have something to say and you're trying to articulate it. Like the, that's all you can do. Yeah. You, you can't look at people and be like, what do they want? Right. That's not. And you, and you can't uh, anticipate how people are going to react to it. And there's this weird, I don't know if dichotomy is the right word, but I want to say it. It just pops in my brain. I'm like, that's a fun word to say. There's a dichotomy between uh, the intention, the execution, and then the reception where it's, uh, they talk about in the show where it's like, Franz says, you know, art is what you do for yourself and work is what you do for others. And I talked about it with Marilee. Did you ever see The Wife with Glenn Close? No. You don't need to. It's not good. But there, the whole like crux of the story basically is that you know, she writes all these books and then her husband, Jonathan Price, signs his name to it. And the whole reason she did it is because when she was a, uh, a student in college in the 50s, she heard two different pieces of advice uh, that stayed with her. One was from a male professor. It might've even been the man who becomes her husband. I can't remember. And he says, um, a writer needs to write. And then she, uh, a female professor says to her, a writer needs to be read. And the two stay with her. And she's like, I, it's going to be, it's so difficult at that time for me as a, as a woman to, to write and be published. Like, while I do need to write. I also need my things to be read. And, there's, I don't, when I say dichotomy, again, I don't know if it's the right word, but the, the whole concept of like, you create the art because you have to and you have something to say. And part of it doesn't matter if anyone ever sees it or hears it, but kind of somebody has to a little bit, right? Yeah, I mean, George, even, even George, who is the most like self, like I'm trying to do something, my mission to see, he says to Jules, I want this to be seen. Like, yeah. I want you to include this in the next showcase. Like he, he is desperate for it to be seen. It, and so I don't think that the two are at odds. Like, I don't think it's like, well, I make art for me. It's like, well, I make art for the masses. Like, no, art is, you make it for yourself so that other people can see it. Like that's, it's, yeah. it's, that is the pipeline. The only difference between, you know, performing in your bathroom and performing on a Broadway stage is that there are people to see it. That's really right. the only difference. And right. that's what, and that's what, and that, but that difference makes all the difference. But also like, isn't that always the impulse? Like as a child, when you like put on plays in your bedroom, you ask your parents to come watch it. Like you don't just like put on a play for no one. Yeah. You immediately are like, I want people to see this thing. I want to share this. Not like, yes, a lot of that is like, I'm a kid and I want praise. But a lot of that is also like, I made a thing that was it needs someone to see it in order to be real yeah look i made a hat where there never was a hat well that's right look i made a hat not just yeah. like gee willikers i made a hat yeah they'll <laughs> look at this it's that sort of that those two lines i think are like george in a nutshell and many artists in a nutshell which is i made something where there wasn't something please look at yeah. it you can yeah. like it or you cannot like it but look but at it look at it yeah, yeah. and i and totally. yeah it's it's great. I think it's so concise. That is the show in a nutshell. Uh, all right. So let's do a rapid fire questioning here, Emily, and, and we'll call this okay. a day. Great. The Sondheim rhyme. What is your favorite lyric in this show? Uh, it's got to be uh, the child is so sweet and the girls are so rapturous. Isn't it lovely how artists can capture us? Mm-hmm. Children and art, the only two things we leave behind. Yeah. Next question. Mm. <clears throat> I had a dream cast 
who would you want to see in a production of Sunday? Wow. Okay. So I went on a walk before this podcast with two of my friends and I, we, we talked about this for the entire walk. So I was like, Matt's going to ask me and I need to know who's going to be in it. <laughs> so we, we, this was a meeting of the minds between two of my friends, Hey Lucas and Betsy. Um, uh, but... Lucas McMahon and Betsy Hogue. Yeah. Oh yeah. Stage door zone. Stage door zone, babe. And Lucas has been on this podcast, friend of the pod. Okay. So I initially put, now this is like the dream. Like, I don't even know if they could sing it version, you know? Mm-hmm. But my initial pitch was Joaquin Phoenix and Jesse Mueller. First of all, Jesse Mueller can absolutely sing it. But Joaquin well, Phoenix, yeah. she can. No, no, no. She, she obviously can. You're talking about Joaquin. Wa- I'm talking about Joaquin. Because I know he can sing. He sings and walk the line. Mm-hmm. Um, but like sing singing, let's, let's, like, let's assume yeah. everybody I'm going to mention can sing. Because that's, sure. I don't know. Sure. But I feel like Joaquin would be extraordinary. Absolutely. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. Right. Okay, and then my second pitch was, this is like the younger version, <laughs> was Ben Wishaw Paddington? and Anya Taylor-Joy. Oh, bitch. Again, Ooh. don't know if they can sing it, but just take a moment and think about that. Oh, I love that so much. Wouldn't that be incredible? Wouldn't she be amazing? Like she's those alien eyes. Like everyone would want to paint her as an artist. Absolutely. How can you not? I really want her in a production of Gypsy as Louise somewhere. I think she would. I just want her. Like, I think she's so amazing and alluring. And you're just like, who are you? Mm -hmm. She's a movie star. She's, she's a movie star in the way that movie stars used to be movie stars, but also like has the talent to back it up, you know? I know. And she's so good. Like she's so good. She and I'm is. kind of like, I Ben Wishaw and Joaquin Phoenix both fall into this category of like, every time I see them in a movie, I feel like I'm watching the character and never not once am I watching the actor. Mm-hmm. Like they, they completely become that like i Joaquin phoenix is never the same in two films and i think ben horshaw is like is the same i think he's such a chameleon there's also something about there's like you you can see the wheels turning behind their eyes but not not like an actor acting you see like all these thoughts that a character is having in their eyes and you want to know all of them next up I know the answer to this, but I have to ask it anyway because it's part of the packet. Yeah. God, that's good. Where does this show rank for you in the Sondheim canon? I mean, it's my personal favorite. So like, I got to give it the top spot. But mm-hmm. if we're talking about like an objective, like what are the, what's the best? Like I definitely would put it in the top like two or three. I think it's mm-hmm. debatable what like objectively the greatest musical is that he ever wrote. And like, are we talking like terms of tech technical things or whatever, but like, I personally, it's my favorite. So it's gotta be number one. Absolutely. Um, Last but not least, because Sondheim musicals tend to come back more and more in these stripped down versions, you know, playing the instruments, unit set, small companies. This section is called, it's the little things, AKA there won't be trumpets because there won't be trumpets in that orchestra, Hanny. How would you simplify this show to its cheapest? And I accept all silly answers here. It's mo- so hard because it's like so much about like the people in the painting and you like kind of can't cut any of them. <laughs> I mean, Patrick Sulkin uh, made a case for a six person forum where everyone's just doubling. <laughs> so that's what that like, that's the level of silly I'm talking here that you can sure. do. Sure. Okay. Then 
I have no idea. Like, like Dot and George are real people and everyone else is animated. Oh, I love that. You, you pay actors for one week of rehearsal where they get, where we yeah. film their performances yeah. and uh, never pay them ever again. Yeah. And everyone else is like these like animated, like, oh, like that movie Love and Vincent where everyone was like a, it was painted like a Vincent Van Gogh painting, or, mm. but it was an animated film. So it's like that where everyone else is these just like moving pointillistic people, but, but Dot and George are real. Emily Malpe, so high tech. You're like the next Eva Van Hoffe. Mm, sure. <laughs> Let's go with that. I don't actually think this is a good idea. But <laughs> no, but, but it's, it's a fun idea. idea. No, I love it very much. Uh, Emily, this has been fantastic. Thank you for coming back on and talking about the show with me. My pleasure. I'll expect to be back in a year to talk once again about Sunday in the Park with George. I also know other things if you're ever interested in me talking about anything else, but seeing as you're not, I'll expect to come back and oh, talk once more. Not about me. In the Park with George. It's not me. It's God. God doesn't want to talk about anything else. I, That's fine. I've fine. accepted. That a thing. year from now, I'm going to do a series on like, I don't know, Jerry Herman. And I'll be like, so I'm talking about Jerry Herman. Can you talk about Sunday in the Park with George? Yeah. Can we talk about the 1983-84 season where... Sunday <laughs> I'm talking about Eugene O'Neill can you talk about Sunday in the park with George <laughs> yeah exactly great can't yeah. wait would like to also just say there are many people in the world who know lots of things about Sunday in the park and I'm in no way the expert no but, but you're happy my, to come on you're the expert for thrilled to be your expert yes you're your breakdowns expert Emily where can people find you um online if you would like them to find you where would you like them to find you um well I've got a website which tells you about my work um, which is simply emilymalty.com. And uh, like all people living in the universe, I have an Instagram. So mm -hmm. just, just add Emily Malpy. Add Emily Malpy. So simple. So wonderful. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Matt Koplik, usual spelling. If you like the podcast, you can rate it. You can subscribe to it. You can write us a little review. Uh, if you don't like my voice, you don't like the things I have to say, if you think I'm not sexual enough, Leave me a review saying so, but make it five stars because I will take your review to heart, but I need that algorithm, Henny. Uh, I'm thinking the diva we should close out with and have it be connected to Sunday. What if I was like Dana Ivy? We're going to find a recording of Dana Ivy singing something that's not Sunday in the Park of George. Show here for that. No, I, I don't Dana. think there are any other musicals she ever did. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to do Miss Jenna Russell, who- Sure. I'm in your- our, uh, we love. yeah so we'll close out with miss uh jenna check out next week when we do into the woods the next lapine sondheim musical and the last one to make money on broadway which is an interesting thing to think about and uh that's it yeah catch you guys next week and thank you so much for listening take us away jenna ah. from the moment we kissed tonight that's the way i've just got to behave Boy, if I were a lamp, I'd light. And if I were a banner, I'd wave. Ask me, how do I feel? Little me with my quiet upbringing. Well, sir, all I can say is if I were a gate, I'd be swinging. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. 